Welcome to the Finder. I'm Tom Haverstrow. Welcome to the Finder. I'm Tom Haverstrow. I took a while, Neil, to figure out what I wanted to call my Substack. I went through a bunch of names and I landed on the Finder. And I realized I should have just gone the Neil Payne route and just called it Neil's Substack. The laziest possible naming convention there is. What what went into, like, how many focus groups did you have? Oh, yeah, I commissioned so many studies. No, honestly, uh, it was the origin of my Substack was it, it was a secret Substack at first. Maybe I should call it Neil's Secret Substack. Um, Ooh, yeah. But uh, I was still working at 538, but I was the sports editor there. And so I wasn't really able to write a whole lot of things that I thought were interesting because I was, you know, editing other people's stuff and, and we didn't have the bandwidth to add a whole lot of like quick reactions or anything like that. So you know, uh, sensing the impending Disney layoff situation anyway, uh, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to do a little secret Substack on the side. And so I, a lot of the things on the Substack are probably still like carries carryovers from that, where it's like not a whole lot of thought was put into it, not a whole lot of like branding or sort of, you know, focus grouping, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's still that way just because like that became the branding in a weird way. Like once I did, mm-hmm. you know, leave Disney and then uh, put it out there and then now back back out in the Substack world with uh, after the messenger. Well, it's a great logo. That is a that's that is AI art for you. That is uh, I, I that's the one thing that I did sort of like go through iterations of and and ultimately you know started with sort of the the premise of like a AI design and sort of spruced it up and and made the color you know the way I wanted to and everything. But that that is actually the most intentional aspect of all of it. I think. So I uh, I, I guess I should prep people listening to this. Uh, you are now at Substack uh, full time, and it is because you love Substack, of course. But because <laughs> there's re- there's a recent layoff at the Messenger, which is uh, some of my favorite people on the planet in the sports writing industry: um, Dan Kaufman, John Shear, Neil Payne, uh, Arash Markazi. Um, there's a bunch of folks over there that, um, were part of the, the unfortunate layoffs at the messenger. And now we're all kind of convening at Substack, or, or at least, um, some of them have come over to, I think Seth Davis, who wrote a gro- great profile on my guy, Steve Forbes, the coach of Wake Forest, um, and his, his wife's, uh, you know, struggles after this stroke and just a really heart, heartwarming story that, got gobbled up in the internet. Um, like when the messenger went down and I was like, why can't this exist anymore? This was such great writing, a great story about uh, the head coach and his family, you know, facing adversity and triumphing over that. But it does seem like it is back and alive. So Neil, thank you for, for whatever hand you had in making sure that we could kind of scrape the messenger's archives and bring it back to Substack and make sure that those stories are live because you guys did some great work. Well, thank you for saying that. And yeah, it was such a um, such a great group that Dan and John sort of assembled at the Messenger. And uh, I think one of my biggest regrets of uh, I, when my career is over, I'll look back and one of the biggest regrets is definitely going to be that we didn't have more time as a group together at the Messenger because we got a little bit of a later start, uh, the sports section there. And I should say what the Messenger is probably, it was it or was. It was a <laughs> uh, startup news site founded by the guy that founded The Hill. 
And the premise of it was that he was going to, uh, you know, go out and get top talent plus me and uh, and be able to <laughs> sort of like flood the zone with uh, a combination of, you know, quick reaction, like news aggregating type stories, but then also sort of longer features. And, you know, the, some of the stuff I was doing was like prediction models, sort of a revival of some of the 538 stuff as well, and kind of combine all those things and make a site out of nothing, like literally out of nothing in, in a very short period of time. And I think they made some miscalculations about exactly uh, what the ad rates would be around uh, around that and being able to kind of make it profitable in a time frame that didn't um, burn through all the venture capital money that they raised. And uh, ultimately, at the end of last month, they decided to shut down the site completely. So I don't even know if it's fair to call it a layoff in the sense like, yeah, most well, I don't layoffs. know why I said that layoff when the well, whole no, company I think just that's went what up I've been air. calling it, too. I think that's what everybody's calling it because we're so used to, you know, it's kind of the age of media layoffs, especially right around the same time, you know, you had so many other outlets laying writers off. So, you know, um, it's a good company to be in, in terms of the number of, uh, you know, talented people, uh, not just from the messenger, but elsewhere that, that, um, became free agents. We'll say that around the same time, but, um, yeah, our site like literally doesn't exist to your point. You know, if you go to <laughs> some of the old, uh, and not even that old, like a month ago or less, um, stories that were out there, uh, that it like gives you a blank screen or whatever. And so one of the things I did was, uh, I had been posting these teaser posts for the stuff I wrote at the messenger the whole time anyway, on Substack, And, uh, it was just to kind of, you know, keep the audience alive a little bit, keep the conversation going with them, let them know like, Hey, I haven't forgotten everybody, you know, that I, uh, got to meet and, and connect with through Substack when I was laid off from 538, a true layoff. Uh, and so, you know, I just went back and I filled out all of those posts with the full text of the, of the things that I had written. And I know, you know, some people like, uh, Mike Tanier, he, I would recommend everybody to, to follow his Substack. Uh, I think it's called too deep zone. Uh, one of the best football writers of all time. Uh, he put up something about the worst coaching hires of all time. That was actually uh, in the works, uh, because we had done so many like Seth Davis and, um, uh, Jeff Goodman had done a piece about the worst coaching hires in college basketball history. And we were like, that was a real big hit. We should do that for a lot of different sports. So I have no doubt that that was in the works from there. He put it up on his Substack today and it's great, like everything he writes. And so, yeah, I do like the fact that some of the stuff that was from there was still kind of confined to life at a place like Substack. And, I, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those things where I don't even know if I should say this, who cares, but it's one of those things where it's like, all of the text from my stories, for instance, months and months ago, even is, is living on Substack. Is that self plagiarism or is that, you know, uh, <laughs> what are they, what are they going to do? Are they going to sue me, you know, for having uh, content that doesn't exist anywhere else that they nuked and they decided to nuke uh, living on my Substack? I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Like when it's your stuff that they bombed, right. It's like, right. The, it's not like you, uh, you're stealing from the the office pantry, right? This is this is your work, and it, they and they closed it down, and and from what I can tell, pretty suddenly. I mean, there was there were news stories, or at least there was chatter about the the messenger not hitting their numbers. But from what I can tell, Neil, this was just like you you got a, a Slack message or something like that, and then it was gone. Poof. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, within like maybe uh, 
a couple hours of the email that we got saying that they were choosing not to continue the site, the whole archive was gone and our Slack was gone within maybe 30 minutes of that email. So there were still people that were posting in there, you know, about sort of in shock about the situation and everything. And then all of a sudden, poof, the Slack is just, you know, probably people were in the middle of typing and it, and it went away. So yeah, that was very abrupt. The whole the whole way it went down was abrupt, um, and it's just unfortunate. I think it's a media story that uh, people are going to tell. They've already been telling, but I, you know, I think when we look back, I think it'll also be just like a story of the Dan Kaufman was telling me like uh, we, we would tell these stories, but nobody would believe them uh, if if we did because they're just kind of so crazy. Uh, and and the story of the messengers, you know, such a sudden demise. Yeah. And, and Dan Kaufman, for those who don't know, uh, he was, um, he was the guy who, uh, when I was at ESPN, I was in this room called the, uh, the stats and analysis like bunker. Okay. So I got an internship. Basically I was a temp agency hire, um, through this thing called edge technologies when I was at a college and basically they put us in this warehouse, not at the real Bristol campus. Neil, do you know the, the campus I'm talking about? The superior building that's down the street from oh, yeah, the real campus. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I took a, um, I think I took like a taxi. This was pre Uber, but I, I think I had to take a taxi from the main campus to that building to have like a meeting one time. Yeah. It's a, it's not a, it's not a fun building because <laughs> you don't get to see all the, uh, like not that they're mascots r- walking around at the ESPN actual Bristol campus, but all the on t- on air talent there at the main campus. But these stats and analysis folks that I came up through, we were in this windowless giant cubicle room. And to make it fun and to spruce it up a little bit, they would put those fat heads uh, on the walls to just like make it feel like it wasn't just a, a total content farm. And what it was Do I still have fat heads, by the way, or is that something only our generation would remember? Uh, so didn't Dan Gilbert, wasn't he behind that company? Yeah, I think he was, he was the, um, at least an investor in it for sure. We have two crack researchers here. Um, I'm sure we can figure this out on the, yeah. And Maze says it's still around. You know what? I, I would love to know how fat head business is doing. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe maybe this is our next story, Neil. We'll do a combo piece. Uh, we'll cross promote um, <laughs> on the the history of fatheads and whether um, work from home. I'm guessing is tanked the fathead business, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you don't have uh, the opportunity to put them up at your office anymore, although childhood bedrooms also seem to be sort of a big market share for them. Uh, So I'm hoping that those still are around. And it makes me think of, you know, for folks a little bit older than us, or maybe we're at the tail end of that generation, the the equivalent of that was like the Costacos Brothers posters. I don't know if you remember those, but those kind of like, they dressed up athletes in crazy outfits that were sort of pun-based off of their name or off of their nickname. And then they had them, it's just some of the most 80s iconography you could imagine on posters. And so I feel like the, there were a lot of oral histories coming up about Costacos posters uh, around maybe like the the in tail end of Grantland uh, days mm. and, and that era. Uh, and so I do feel like the oral history of the fathead, which is like sort of the next generation or half generation uh, of, of Costacos, uh, is prime for one of those oral histories uh, yeah. to emerge, I think. And that and that the reason I bring up fathead is because it was not the most joyful place to work. 
Uh, I think Windows only sources of joy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but to be to be fair, we're watching sports for a living, and my first job was basically watching NC State versus South Carolina football and inputting the live stats into a computer. So number 17 passes to 88 for 13 yards on the 43 yard line and then input it into stat crew that would go out to the game cast that you would see online. And we would sit there all night and watch tape and basically manually input that data. It could have been anything. Uh, It was sports. So it was cool. Um, The second thing I did was watch uh, getting those official box scores from the school, Neil, and then from like D3 basketball or D2 basketball, whatever whatever sport that's on ESPN.com, and we would fact check the articles, I mean the, the box scores. So so it would be, here's the official box score from Fairleigh Dickinson, and now we have to match, count the bean, we, we call it bean counting, um, count the beans and see, making sure that it reflects the same numbers on ESPN.com. So we had the paper in our hand and the screen in front of us, And so that was my job. Then Dan Kaufman calls because I was doing some next, what they call it, they branded next level stats, Neil. And it was kind of like advanced stats, sabermetrics. And I wrote a couple little blurbs and research packets. And Dan could correct me if I'm wrong. But I was doing some research work on next level data for guys like Chris Broussard, Rick Buecher. I was the researcher for their ESPN Mag articles. And John Shear and Dan Kaufman were like, hey, have you ever written before? I'm like, no, I just do research. <laughs> like, I, I've, never, I've never taken a journalism class. I don't write articles. I just kind of write these research packets. And he's like, I think you, you should try this. Like, you should, you should give it a hand. And so from there, my career took off. Yeah, the rest is history. Because I, I, didn't, I didn't know that you could do that. Like, just start writing, you know? And it was basically, Neil, like the big break, and this is where I'd like to talk to you about is my big break was the draft initiative. I remember that, yeah. The the, the Lost was huge at this point. And there was that thing called the Dharma Initiative and Lost. (laughs) And my editor, Jordan Brenner, wanted to do a statistical analysis of the draft and essentially uh, the value of draft picks can you build a database, Tom, that will inform us on like, you know, draft pick efficiency and who is the best at drafting, the best GMs? And so I built it, just downloading the basketball reference data and cleaning up the data, putting in a spreadsheet. And I was like, oh my God, this is there's like 30 stories in here. And Dan Kaufman and John Shear and Jordan Brenner, they're like, hey, find the 15th best stories, the 15 best stories in here, in this database that you've created. And we're going to do insider articles about this. And that kind of, that was a pivotal moment for me to realize that the power isn't in the database, really. The power is finding what is interesting in that database. And it's one thing to be like, hey, here's, um, here's a spreadsheet, go have fun with it. But it's another for you to curate what is interesting, find what's interesting, and then write a whole article about it. And so, Neil, you've built a ton of databases and you, 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 you update those databases constantly. 
finding what's interesting in those databases is a whole nother deal. And it's a, it's a skill. And you've, you've mastered that skill by all the articles you've written based on the databases that you've created. But is that uh, what you take the most pride in is building the databases, building this like mine full of information because that is your superpower? Or do you take more pride in being like, okay, I built the database, but it's more interesting to pull out what's interesting, more, more um, effective to kind of identify the kernels or the little gems in that database to create a narrative or to create a, a story that people will find interesting. Oh, I definitely think the storytelling aspect is the the part that I'm, you know, d- that I live for, honestly. I mean, the the databases are kind of a means to that end and they're really mm-hmm. important. And one of the things that I always try to kind of tell like younger writers, if they want to get into data journalism, especially in sports, is being able to have at least some baseline amount of data that you know you can kind of call upon, especially if a particular story breaks and you're looking for some way in that isn't what everybody else is saying, knowing that type of thing and keeping it updated or knowing how to get it. And that could even just be, hey, I'm really good with Stathead at, you know, basketball reference. And I know where everything is in that and how to find specific things. So it doesn't even have to be things that you keep yourself, but being able to have that grasp of and that mastery of being able to know where something is at a moment's notice, I think is super important. But the execution of the stories is what I think is the coolest part of the job both of us have, honestly, and, and the, the way that you can kind of pull those narratives out. And and it's this melding of like, okay, what are people talking about? And what is the data that I have say, can I get something that speaks to what they're talking about out of this data that I already have? And I've been updating or, and you're really good at this is, can I create data? Uh, out of things that maybe <laughs> other people don't have or it's not readily available, but being able to sort of make data where where there isn't anything, but there's the potential to have something. I think that's another aspect of it. And then it all sort of comes together in the execution. So the the I never quite got there, but the thing I was maybe like the most excited about when I was at 538 was the idea of getting to 2000 stories. I would like track how many you could go to your author page and you could look at how many stories you had. And I hit a thousand and my editor, Micah Cohen, he gave me a little certificate. He was like, that's amazing. Nobody else has, you know, uh, Nate Silver might be the only person that that had more than a thousand there uh, going back all the way to the very beginning. And so he gave me a little certificate and and, uh, he was like, here's to the next, you know, we'll give you another one when you get to 2000. And he had long since left by the time that that we were done there. But uh, I think I ended up at like 1900 something. But to me, that speaks to like, I was really proud of the ability to actually get something that rises to the level of like, we can publish this and it is interesting and people would want to read it over 1900 times out of the data. Because I do think sometimes people confuse just like, okay, we've got data and I'm going to do something off of it. Uh, But it's, you know, it's not inherently interesting unless you find the way to craft that narrative and, and find the way in to address things that people are talking about stuff that's in the sort of sports zeitgeist. Do you find Okay, so pre pre social media, I had this story that I wrote for Insider. I don't know if it's pre social media, but I, I'll get to the point. It was who's the LVP in the NBA? 
everyone was talking about the MVP and whether it was Kaufman or whether it was, you know, one of my editors was like, Tom, who's like the LVP, the, the least <laughs> valuable player? And I remember writing it about Kendrick Perkins because the on-off-court data with Kendrick Perkins and his PER at the time, that was the best available metric. And I was like, yeah, he, he doesn't produce uh, in the box score and his on-court, off-court rating is not great. And I remember publishing that and realizing there's almost value in being uh, insulated from the negativity that you're probably going to be... Um, I don't know, people aren't going to like the fact that you're calling someone the worst coach in college basketball or the worst hire in college basketball, the least valuable player. But data-driven analysis, I think there is something to the fact of bringing to light things that you feel like are true or we're always talking about like the positive awards. But Neil, did you ever write like a negative story that you felt bad about afterwards that you're like, I mean, the data does say this and i feel like people would be interested to learn who's the most inefficient x you know oh yeah i mean if you're in this uh area for any amount of time you're gonna write those stories and uh, you know i tend i think as i've gotten older maybe i've tended to kind of identify more with the athletes in in terms of just feeling like i don't want to put somebody on blast i think there's also an aspect that i when i was younger and and we were like you know the moneyball had just come out sabermetrics and just analytics in general was like the new hot thing i think it was really easy to get way out ahead of your skis have you know sort of a I don't want to say arrogance but this idea of like yes. okay if the numbers say something and you mentioned like PER was the state of the art. I mean, that was true back in, you know, the early 2010s or the late 2000s or, or you know, when you would have been writing that for Insider. And so, you know, I think those kind of give us a lesson with with experience and time and seeing more stats come in that paint a different picture. You sort of have this idea of like, okay, well, I don't know everything. And, and mm. Kendrick Perkins, I would imagine, probably shows up possibly differently than uh, if you looked at, you know, some of the newer stats and, and maybe, you know, there's still an aspect of that since you were using the the plus minus data, but there are always ways to kind of add more nuance to it. And so I, I think I got an appreciation for that. Even something like probably my most infamous post of all time is still uh, Andrew Wiggins was about, I don't know if you remember this time, you probably do. Uh, he It was about two months into his NBA career. It's very hyped. People forget uh, exactly how hyped he was. Yeah as a rookie, but, uh, people were talking about, you know, tanking for him, you know, two years in advance, he was, you know, Maple Jordan, all this going to mm -hmm. kind of be the next LeBron. And so I, I wrote a story cause his early in his rookie year, his, his advanced numbers were like really bad, like very, very bad. Uh, and I was like, you know, for a guy that was hyped that much, how uncommon is it for someone to start their career with those kinds of numbers? And so I looked at other rookies and looked at their first, you know, couple months or whatever it was. And he was like among the worst in that group. And I looked at how those guys ended up panning out and said, I think the headline was, and it was looking at all rookies, not just um, at the same age, but I added a little aging adjustment to it. Uh, and so it was the headline was like, forget the next LeBron James. Andrew Wiggins might not be the next James Posey. And, and oh, so, yeah, yes. Yeah. Who wrote that so, headline? Who is that? Uh, I, I forget <laughs> if uh, I think it was, you know, I don't want to put somebody on blast for it, so I won't say. But oh. anyway, 
<laughs> Fair, but also I would give him kudos. That's a that's a great clickable headline. Yes, it's very clickable, right? Especially at that time, number one uh, overall pick. And so, you know, the the story itself, I think, was a lot kinder on him than than the headline made it seem. But we, uh, I think, we picked out James Posey because he was in that group that was around mm. the same, you know, projected uh, rookie performance or whatever. And so, uh, when that hit, it was like two days before Christmas or like the day before Christmas. So I was off that day and I was at the gym and all of a sudden I was getting like a lot of tweets at me and I was like, wow, I wonder what's going on. I didn't, I'm off today. Nothing even happened. And a lot of people were mad about that. And in retrospect, I understand why I understand why they were mad about it. Uh, and I think in some ways it was, um, a good lesson in like two months of data is not a huge amount of data to judge someone on, even if you are looking at other players in their first two months uh, of performance and kind of projecting that forward. And so that one, especially since right after that story hit, he started scoring a lot. Like he had a a number of 30 plus point games. I don't know if he read the story and was motivated by it. Uh, I was just going to say, this is, this is proving (laughs) your theory that, uh, or at least this is what catapulted him without, without your article. Maybe he would turn it to James Posey. Yeah. Well, and so, uh, you know, he, he plays out the rest of the season wins rookie of the year, although his numbers were, it was one of those like, you know, a lot of scoring volume, maybe not the best efficiency type of uh, seasons that we often see. I think, you know, top uh, really, really high picks tend to have that because they're thrust into situations where they're kind of the only guy on the team that can score and they have to do a lot more than they're ready for at that time. Now, of course, as time goes on, uh, the people that were most mad at me at the time were Timberwolves fans because that was their guy. That was the future of their franchise, uh, especially after that trade, uh, you know, and, and everything that had happened uh, even before he had played a game. And so over time, though, I noticed that the the people who were adding me about that, and they still would for years and years later, it suddenly shifted from like, you know, you're an idiot. This is terrible. He's going to be great to like, we're actually pretty dissatisfied with him by the end <laughs> with Minnesota. And they're like, was Neil Payne right? And I was like, yeah. look, I don't think I was right or wrong. I think that I could have done a better job on that story. What I think is really interesting, though, is now that we have a lot of perspective on it, uh, James Posey as a player, you know, he was a lottery pick and was cast in this role as a scorer on a bad team, didn't have great, you know, efficiency numbers, eventually made his way to the Celtics as a three and D wing and was a pretty integral part of a championship team for them. Hmm, That sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. Now I'm not going to take credit. I could not have foreseen, uh, you know, that, that path that, that would lead Wiggins to the Warriors and, and uh, all of that. But I do think it's really funny that you could actually sort of find a parallel in there out of this story. That was, you know, one of the most infamous ones that I ever wrote that even there, as long as you're grounded in data. And that was the thing that I kind of went back to is like, that wasn't my hot take. It was something that you could be premature with making assessments off of data in a small sample. Uh, Obviously you're not going to look at like the first game of someone's career and say, you know, decide uh, about them based on that. But, you know, as long as you're grounded in some amount of data and you're transparent about your process that you used and how you came to the conclusion that you came to, there's a decent chance that you'll eventually not be completely wrong about something. So I think that's the big lesson out of, out of that uh, thing. But I, Andrew Wiggins, because of the focus that, you know, sort of people sort of thrust his, uh, his career into my 
my mentions and all of those things. He became one of my favorite players, and I was really excited to see him go to the Warriors and excited to see him in that role. So it really came full circle for me as well of like, this is how someone that you're critical of when they're a rookie can then suddenly become one of your favorite players over time. Because especially I felt like the, the T wolves fans. And again, I understood why, but by the end of his time there, they were actually being kind of unfair to him. I was actually sort of defending him to them, which was like such a backwards upside down place to be compared to where we were just a few years earlier. I remember one time I did a, a hit on the jump and to speaking to like, Sometimes the headline or sometimes the someone runs with your stat and twists it in a way that makes you, you know, look bad. That was me with Kobe Bryant saying Rudy Go Rudy Gobert. Not Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gay is more clutch than Kobe. So what happened was uh we were on the jump and T Mac was on set with me and Rachel, Rachel Nichols, and we were talking about the most overrated clutch players in the NBA. And I was like, well, the data shows that Kobe Bryant is not nearly as efficient as these players. And actually Rudy Gay, if we're talking about like shooting percentage on the last five seconds, whatever the clutch parameters were. And that was the long time, like Henry Abbott, like true hoop was like, they, they went through a spell where that was like a big time stat because it was true. It was true, right? Is that Kobe Bryant, while he is heralded as the most clutch assassin in NBA history, the shooting percentages do not back that up. And there's probably nuanced ways to look at it now versus how we did it with straight field goal percentage back then. But I remember doing the segment and while I'm saying the line of like, if Kobe (laughs) was coming out of your mouth, (laughs) as it's coming out, I can feel like, all of the hate and all of the the people in my mentions just never letting go of like the sentence. And I, I forget exactly what it was. And I'm sure if you go on YouTube, there's a thousand clips of this. <laughs> but I essentially said, like, if if we look at the data, Rudy Gay had much better clutch numbers or much higher percentage in the clutch than Kobe Bryant. And Tracy McGrady just looked at me like... <laughs> are you fucking kidding me, nerd? Like, like, are you saying that Rudy Gay is more clutch than Kobe? And I was like, well, the numbers suggest that, you know, in these situations, look at the, look at the film. And that's one of the things that I've always, I've always harped on is like, we're not making up these makes by Rudy Gay. We're not yeah, things invent- that actually did happen. Right. And if you showed the clips, and I think we did, showed the clips of Rudy Rudy Gay hitting these shots, then you start to be like, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then the, the, the flip side is true is if you start showing all the misses by Kobe, it starts to feel more real. And so a lot of times when you write these stories, Neil, um, sometimes the feedback is like, watch the games, right? Watch the games, nerd. Uh, get out of your mother's basement and watch the games. And I'm... A lot of times my reflexive defensive stance is like, where do you think we get these numbers from? Yeah, there are things that actually did. There are events that are tracked in the game. And I think, you know, the the, the way that I've kind of come around on that, especially with Kobe, because he was such a lightning rod player as a, you know, in the analytics world, there were some metrics I remember like, 
when people were first starting to get into that, that were like, you know, Landry Fields is way better than Kobe Bryant. Like that all sounds of really insane types of, uh, you know, rankings that you could kind of come off of. Yeah. And so, you know, I think in the full view of things, Kobe was a player that was such a, like he was the avatar for all of the ways in which analytics uh, changed over the years. Like we came to have a, I think a better assessment of him. Like you mentioned nowadays, we would look at something like, you know, expected effective field goal percentage based on the particulars of the shots he was taking, like the defender proximity and the X, Y location of it. And there's so many things like all the, you know, this tracking data. You could basically say like when Kobe was guarded by three defenders, he shot 41%. The average when they're guarded by three defenders is 12%, whatever it would be. And you'd be like, oh, Kobe Bryant, his added value on his shots based on shot difficulty. And and Second Spectrum has this data and other other data providers have this data. We just didn't know the shot quality aspect of it. And also... um, there's there's turnovers to consider too is that like yes kobe did not shoot very well high percentage and i don't know i actually haven't can't recall but there is value in just getting the shot off versus passing it around and playing hot potato and potentially giving up that turnover and i think that was actually an aspect of it as well that people kind of eventually got to so you know um i think it was kyle wagner who was my colleague at 538 for a while he wrote a piece about how kobe was the best shot maker just on what you were talking about, the basis of this like ex- field goal, actual versus expected field goal percentage based on the the difficulty of the shots he took. He was the best shot maker in the NBA during the period of time in which they had that tracking data as of like, you know, probably the end of his career. And you can kind of get into next level things of like, would you rather have someone who takes really difficult shots, but is a really good shot maker or someone who takes comparatively easier shots and hits them at the league average. And to me, that kind of gives you another way of thinking about sort of all of these age old arguments. That's the Shaq versus Kobe argument, right? Like Shaq probably had, if we had tracking data for his, uh, you know, prime, he probably had the highest expected field goal percentage of any player in the league by far, because he was just impossible to move from very close proximity to the rim. And it didn't matter that he didn't have a, you know, jump shooting range or anything like that because he created the most of his value uh, before he ever got the ball in a lot of ways. Whereas Kobe, all of his value added was after he got the ball and he was able to make shots that everybody else couldn't make. So I think that those dynamics in stats and the way that we can actually measure those things now add just such an extra layer and bring us closer to getting away from the whole like mother's basement thing and more into this uh, area of like players can appreciate i think when you contextualize things more around something like shot difficulty and uh, uh you know shot making as a skill than just saying like oh, well, you know, his field goal percentage was this and that's just that. That's a conversation ender, whereas I think nowadays more of our stats are conversation extenders and we can kind of open up the conversation more. And that, I think, has left us in kind of a better place. Uh, Both, you know, it seems like the Cold War between uh, stat heads and scouts or stat heads and players or whatever it used to be, that has kind of reached a, a truce of some sort in recent years. Yeah, covering the Blazers um, 
as their quote-unquote analytics insider, I was struck by how Chauncey Billups, former player, champion, finals MVP, really uh, one of the top point guards of his generation, he's in the middle of these preseason uh, discussions with the, with media, and he's citing points per possession. And he's saying, like, when we get the ball in the paint, we're 1.32 points per 100 possessions. And then when we don't get in the ball in the paint, we're X, Y, and Z. And I remember being like, it's not just that he's a coach saying it, he's a former player saying these things because you remember Neil that like a decade ago, there was this big whole pH basketball PhD controversy where I think it was, it might've been Chris Broussard wrote a story about how the rise of um, analytics guys in front offices and how we need more guys with P- basketball PhDs now. And the, ins- the um, inference was that in order to truly understand basketball, you need to have played it at the highest level. And these analytics guys like you and I, who didn't play <laughs> in the NBA, we couldn't possibly know basketball. Um, and we don't have a degree in basketball, like say Chauncey Billups might, but I thought it was really cool and in instructive that um, probably with the right people around Chauncey, or maybe Chauncey didn't know that this data was available beforehand, but a lot of the things that he intuitively knew about basketball and people intuitively know about basketball, just watching it, can be quantified now with real data that before we just kind of took as like a truism. It just was conventional wisdom that, yeah, you want to get the ball in the paint. But now Chauncey's like, Yo, when we get the ball in the paint, this is how much better it is. And he's putting it up on the on the board at practice. Here's our numbers. And it's very clean. When we get the ball in the paint, here's our points per possession. When we don't, here's what it is. Or when we crash this number of players, here's what our points per possession is. And it's so clean and it and it drives home the point very clearly. And now coaches are using these uh this data to help inform and to drive home some of their principles. And I don't know, it, it, I think there's still a lot more work that we can do, Neil, to break down those barriers and not make data scary or, or too bogged down in the numbers. But when you talk about building your database and creating the data to find the story that, um, that you're, I guess, looking for, for me, um, I, as I've been like a big, reporter around player injuries and player health and just felt like there just wasn't any good data around that story. Right. And like having, having like some, some intuitive hypotheses about rest and injury rates and all this stuff. And then once you start to put together some of this data, stories come through that like makes so much sense after you see the data and then you're like, I got to write about this. And the one that I keep thinking about recently was one I did on Substack that you wrote on ESPN Insider was this revelation about how Denver has a home court advantage and the mountains are really tough on teams coming in in the regular season. And the home court advantage for Denver and for Utah is the biggest in sports and for, for the Utah Jazz and Denver Nuggets. And I think you had written for Insider how that impacts postseason performance, right? 
And so, Neil, correct me if I'm wrong, but like I think your your finding was those teams in the regular season outperform expectations, Utah and Denver, because it's hard with the altitude and it's hard with the um, the lack of oxygen uh, in the air up there. And your finding was that those teams tend to underperform in the postseason because a lot of the the rest advantage that you get in the regular season at the spaced out postseason, you don't really have those sort of quick turnarounds playing a back to back in Denver or Utah. And I was like, that is that makes so much sense. But I'm so glad that you're able to find the data to back that up. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm impressed. I've totally forgot about that. <laughs> that that was a long time ago. That's a great uh, that's a well, great pull. But I do remember doing that. And what we had looked at was just like when you set up a, a system of ratings, you know, like the simple rating system, they call it at basketball reference, which is just schedule adjusted points per game differential. You can put custom home advantage figures into that. Uh, and they don't do that at basketball reference because they keep it. I mean, the word simple is in the name of the yeah. rating. Uh, and, and most of the time it doesn't really matter. You can kind of use a blanket home court, I guess in this case, or home field and football or baseball effect. And it won't really change that much, but it does matter at the outliers. And I think Denver and Utah were the only teams that had a statistically significant effect above and beyond the like average. So you could use the league average for like every other team and it would be fine. But for those two teams, they had that extra boost that came from the altitude, the travel distance, the location that's like very off the beaten path from any other city in terms of like surrounding areas, those all kind of came together to give them that advantage. And you're totally right that in the playoffs, when you actually have fewer, you know, travel days packed into a a period of time, it doesn't matter as much. And so you have to kind of work around that. It makes me think of another thing that I found a hobby horse of mine, this in baseball, not in basketball is about the Colorado Rockies. It's very similar where because of the way the ball doesn't break at high altitudes, they, so they hit really well at home. Everyone knows that. Yeah. But when they make the transition to uh, playing games on the road and the ball breaks more like, you know, curveball sliders, et cetera, their offenses are so, so, so much worse than we would even expect just from park factors, which look at like when the average team comes to Colorado, okay, here's how much better they hit. So, you know, you take all of the opponents that Colorado plays, look at how their hitting stats change between their usual park and going to Colorado. You would think that that would work in reverse, right? Like you could take that back, that effect out of Colorado's home stats and you would get what they would do at road parks. It is not the case. They do so much worse than that. And it's because of this kind of hidden effect that everyone sort of thinks of as being, oh, well, it's a home field advantage for the Mm. Rockies when they hit at home because the air is thin. They hit the ball further. You know, the ball is more likely to go over the fence, so on and so forth. But they actually have a even more severe home field disadvantage when they go anywhere else at normal altitudes because the ball just behaves differently there and they're used to seeing it not break as much. So those are examples of something where like, Rocky's players probably could tell you like, 
hey, it, it, it is different. It feels different yeah. when we go somewhere else. Uh, just like, you know, NBA players that have to go and play at Denver are probably like, man, I am gassed. It's only, yeah. what quarter is it? Oh my God, yeah, it's well, only the end of the first quarter. Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid <laughs> leaving the game at the yeah. last minute because of an injury. Um, people say, oh, he's, he's soft or there's something screwy there. And I'm like, or it's Denver. And, yeah. and like, your knee is going to bark a little bit more maybe because of the altitude or you just don't feel right. And you warm up and you're like, something feels off. And I didn't feel off two hours ago, but when I got out here, maybe I'm gassed, my knee's swelling up. I'm just, I can't, I can't go. And so the reason why I wrote that article, Neil, and Denver, we could go an hour about Denver's home court and home field <laughs> effects for, for multi, multiple sports. But like for, for the Nuggets, I had done... I just decided I'm going to look at the NBA stars. Which cities do they sit the most? That's smart. And I found that the top two cities that NBA stars miss the most is Denver and Utah. So not and even Miami. They don't even get the Miami flu as much as they get, <laughs> they get the actual altitude effects. That's right. That's right. The South Beach flu, as we called it in Miami. <laughs> oh, man. James Harden looks real sluggish out there today. Um, yeah, I wonder why. So, Neil, it all like those eureka moments is what I live for, right? Is the when you're at your desk and you're running the numbers and then something pops up and you're like, of course, this is fascinating. And the thing was Denver and Utah had the the highest rate of star DNPs of any city. And it was like by a, a pretty sizable margin. And it occurred to me that part of that might be because the medical staffs know that the altitude can have this kind of down uh, effect on your health, or you might be more at risk for injury. And so if you're borderline going into that game, they're just like, look, we're going to take this game off. Yeah. But then... Doesn't that also, Neil, make their regular season point differential uh, uh, overrated in a sense? Because if their regular season opponents are also having, you know, their star DNPs, they're going to be performing a lot better in the regular season because they don't have to play LeBron and Joel Embiid. And whenever they come through, they're they're playing the B team, so to speak. So doesn't that already make their in-season, regular season ratings like artificially high? Yeah, I mean, anything that affects the talent level that you're playing against that and, and we don't tend to typically counter, you know, account for that in strength of schedule measurements. So that's right. another thing where, you know, I've I did this for a little while back at way back in the day at Basketball Reference when I was doing the blog there. Um, I haven't done it since, but it actually would be kind of interesting is thinking about like, what is the true strength of schedule that a team face if, if you include who at they the played level. against? Yeah. And there was um, I, I should give a plug to there's a site called The Pudding, which is uh, it, it does visualizations. I'm sure you've seen it. It's uh, they do data viz in like all kinds of different ways, but they tried to asterisk every NBA title by looking at players of certain calibers or tiers that were or weren't available in the series that the NBA champion played them in. So, you know, if LeBron is, I guess he hasn't missed any series, but you know, if you're <laughs> playing against like the non James Harden Sixers, you know, you, you get 
downgraded a little bit or sort of like it's uh, oh, yeah. it, it makes it it dings your title and then they added up all of the different uh you know absences and tried to figure out who was the most asterisk nba champion i don't remember who it was but i think last year's nuggets were actually pretty high uh and that's an example of the postseason so it doesn't even take into account the regular season where uh, the the absences are going to be more just more prevalent in general. I think for every team, um, especially before this season, when they put in that sixty five game requirement, which I know you uh, do not love. Um, and so, yeah, I think that doing that would be really interesting for either one of us or some enterprising uh, stat head that's listening right now. That that story that I wrote was Dion. Embiid and the NBA's fear of heights. And I cited Ooh, you in that story, headline. Neil. Yeah. I love that. Because Deion Sanders came and talked to the um to the Sixers pre in training camp. I remember that. And, was, yeah. and he was like smoking Joel Embiid, just like laying into him <laughs> for for ducking uh uh Jokic. And I was like, he's 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 really chewing out. Embiid here for something that every NBA star seems to be doing a lot, which is missing games in Denver. And there is a fear of heights in the league. And so um, that's one of my favorite little gems that I, I found really interesting is, is this thing that we kind of know to be true when we see the data and then like you put it down on paper and people around the legal text, you'd be like, Oh my God, like, that, that we always talk about that is like, man, we wish we had the Denver fear of heights that when people came into town, we wouldn't have to face the, the great, you know, player on their team. Um, what else is something that you've, you've particularly enjoy, um, a story or a gem that you were just kind of blown away in the data and couldn't wait to write about it? Well, a recent example, which I think is a little bit similar in terms of its origins, was the one that I wrote, I think it was just last week, about this uh, ongoing trend in the NBA where the most efficient players have lower and lower usage rates, uh, even as the league itself is becoming more efficient than ever. I love the this origin, piece. I yeah, love thank this you. Piece. Yeah, And I couldn't wait to write it like, you know, I'm sure as you could say in the Substack life as well, you're sort of constantly thinking about like, okay, what am I going to tee up for? I try to post every day or near about every day. What am I going to tee up for tomorrow? And do I, do I want to waste something that, I mean, it's not a waste, but do I want to take something that I'm working on like mid morning or something? And do I want to save it for tomorrow or do I want to post it today and just get it out there. And usually I'll save it, especially if it's not ever, if it's more evergreen and not about something that's happening, like in the moment, like after the Super Bowl, I was like, I got to get out as many Patrick Mahomes thoughts as I have in my head right now. But on the NBA, in the middle of the regular season, generally you can say like, I'll just put this out here tomorrow. I'll schedule it for 6 a.m. tomorrow. But when I wrote this piece, I was like, I got to put this out right now. Just even though it was a Friday, Friday posts tend to not do that well <laughs> as a general rule on the internet because people yeah. are kind of checking out from work early and all that. So it went against all the rules that I would think about posting, but I was like, I still just got to put it out. And the And I was thinking... I was like, first I was, I was sort of looking at like just the stats from this year and thinking like, it seems like teams have kind of cut out players that are like super duper inefficient compared to previous years. Like the guys that just have like 
unconscionably bad uh, efficiency numbers. Uh, and so I was kind of looking at that and I didn't really find much of an effect, though, especially if you normalize for the fact that everyone in 2024 is efficient. It's the most efficient season in mm. NBA history. But what I did find sort of accidentally or part of just as as I was looking at that, I noticed I, I was like the correlation between uh, efficiency and usage is going down. Uh, it's, it's not that high this season. And I was like, Oh, well, I wonder what it was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I plotted that out and you can actually see that chart in the story. And, and I saw it and there's this like clear downward pattern where back in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties, the players that had the highest efficiency on a team were generally also the players that shot the most on a team. But now we've seen this decoupling where the players that are the most efficient on a team are the ones. And I, uh, uh, I who did I use as my example? Powell. Yeah, I, right. Exactly. Uh, with Dallas. And he was the second lowest, uh, if, uh, second lowest usage of any player in the league. It's like 9% or something, just crazy low yet also is on pace to have the highest efficiency, uh, points per points created per 100 possessions of any player in the history of the NBA. Now, I don't know how many people would think Dwight Powell when they think of who's the most efficient player in NBA history. I don't think they're thinking about Dwight Powell in that conversation. So that was interesting in and of itself, but he is kind of the avatar for this phenomenon, which I think goes along with the idea that's been around for a few years. I think it was Seth Partno that came up with it of like heliocentrism, more and more of NBA offense is being concentrated in fewer and fewer players, which explains why there are these players that have super low usage rates as well. And we're seeing this trend where more players either have a really high usage rate or a really low usage rate than they did 10, 20, 30 years ago when there were more players that were kind of just and teams that shared the ball a lot more equally among their regular players and in hand in hand with that the low usage players are becoming wildly efficient and yeah. some of that is like knowing through the tracking data and through knowing you know like the chauncey billups insights that you were talking about knowing about how to use these players and put them in a position consistently to maximize what they're good at and minimize what they're not good at and not put them in a position to go outside of of their skill set teams are so much better at that now than they used to be in the past and i think it's the influence of coaches understanding analytics and we are now seeing and you know maybe Dwight Powell's a little too old for this he's 32 uh but younger players I think we're gonna see even more of this going forward because the younger players have grown up with analytics kind of critiquing their games since they were young and they will go to these camps and you know coaches will set up uh tracking you know systems to try to figure out like hey let's maximize the arc on your jump shot let's maximize you know how you're jumping uh and, and where you're kind of putting the load on your body when you're doing these basketball actions. These players have grown up with analytics, so it's natural to them to think in terms of points per yeah. possession and to think about maximizing the things that they're good at. They're, you know, It's harder to be delusional about your skill set as a basketball player when you've sort of had it measured your whole life, I think. And so I think all of those things are coming together where now we're having just this kind of perfect mix of putting players in the right roles. And yes, there are these players that, you know, like Luca is, uh, uh, Embiid and Luca have like two of the highest usage rates for a single season in NBA history, yet also 
they're so good that it hasn't really mattered. And then by having that be true, it allows the players playing around them to put up truly impressive efficiency numbers. So I think that is sort of a way in which the league has cracked the code and increased efficiency on top of the usual suspects that people talk about, which is like they're shooting threes. They've cut out mid-range shots, you know, all the things that we already know about how offenses have become more efficient. Well, um, I love that piece because it got me thinking in like a hundred different, you know, follow up stories um, that we're we're probably going to go off air and and discuss. Like, (laughs) how do we how do we uh, how do we come up with like five follow ups to that? Because it is it is fascinating to me. And I I think about Roy Hibbert. And how they, you know, the, the old shackism that you have to you have to feed the big man. You have to feed him early to get him to play defense. So we have this almost like an an an, an understanding that it's not going to be the most efficient play. But if you want to have him bust his ass defensively, you got to feed the big. You got to feed the big man. And I remember like watching like the Indiana Pacers in the playoffs against the Miami Heat when I was covering the Miami Heat and being like, why are they like giving away the first three possessions? They're just giving them away. They're dumping it down to Roy Hibbert in the post. And then they just, they, it's just, they're, it's trash. It's trash offense. And I remember a coach or a player was just like, yeah, well, if you want Roy Hibbert to play defense and go verticality every single play and go like this when the freight train of LeBron James is coming down the lane, <laughs> you got to you got to feed the big man. And it's so it's almost tax to be on a poster uh, to be willing to be on a poster. You have to pay a tax. You have to pay the tax. And the tax <laughs> is we're going to take Paul George, who's super efficient and say, feed Roy Hibbert in the post just for a few possessions. Um, and it was the same thing with a bunch of big men. And I'm, I'd be wondering in the data, um, you know, maybe five years ago, Rudy Gobert gets a couple post-ups, you know, and 10 years ago, Roy Hibbert gets a bunch of post-ups to start a game. And now because post-ups and mid-range uh, shots are being kind of excised away from the offense, um, I wonder if there's kind of a flip side to this is like, hey, if you want better defense, maybe you got to go feed the big man and take a couple possessions off in the beginning of the game in order for you to get the reap the benefits on the other end because we all know that the, the offenses are getting so much more efficient how do we get better defensively well maybe part of it is the defenders who normally would be motivated to defend or make that rotation or take that charge or play verticality and get trampled by lebron <laughs> maybe they don't feel inclined to do that to make the extra basketball play because they didn't get fed well, and there's always kind of a give and take and the pendulum kind of swinging too far in particular directions. I mean, when you're talking about Roy Hibbert getting his touches, even though uh, it, it really isn't the most efficient option, I think about immediately like how NFL coaches used to just run the ball, you know, up the middle for a yard on first and 10 and second and nine. And then, you know, uh, nowadays they've kind of cut that out uh, a lot. And NFL offenses are becoming more efficient that way. But there's probably a tipping point at which, like, you do need to run the ball to, uh, you know, set up the pass. In addition to just there's a cost to get moving away from that. What that cost is, maybe they don't know. But yeah, you have to find the equilibrium. And and so everything is going to be rebalanced when it becomes the, the meta that the game is currently played in. You're changing the meta from what it was back in the Patrick Ewing and even the Roy Hibbert days. And now, you know, you've completely 
completely changed it in the way teams played the selection of players. Like if, even if you're a big man now, you have to be able to shoot, you know, Wimby is maybe like the, the apotheosis of all these trends in one person even. Uh, and so, you know, eventually there's going to be somebody that takes advantage of the pendulum swinging too far in that direction. And we go back to a version of what we had before. I don't know when that happens. I don't know what it looks like. It probably doesn't look exactly like the way it used to, but that's the great thing about sports is it's about reactions and counter reactions and then counters to the counters. And it's, it's like chess played with extremely athletic, uh, guys. When, um, when you worked for the Hawks, you were you were part of the analytics team for the Hawks, right? I was. I worked for Dan Rosenbaum, who's one of the all-time great analytics uh, minds in NBA history. Do you think that made you a better writer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it did. And and some of that was just knowing, like, I would write things, but they would be internal for the coaching staff. And so before every game, I would be tasked with kind of preparing tendency reports about the, the team we were about to play. And then I would also have to, and these, you want to find like moments where it's like, okay, this is nerve wracking. I would give presentations uh, about sort of the long-term tactics that the franchise was taking in front of the whole ownership group in front of the GM, you know, and they put that trust in me because to their credit, because they were really invested in, uh, you know, having analytics play a role in the front office. And so somehow that is how I found myself giving this lecture about, you know, the, the, the pros and cons of tanking in front of like, you know, the, all of these people who had been in the NBA for like decades and these, you know, billionaire owners and so on and so forth. And so, you kind of had to just be like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just presenting information and, you know, I'm, I'm going to give them the the best information that I have because that's, that was my job. And so, you know, I got through that and, and they were receptive to it. And, and that was, you know, I don't think that uh, like you can't pinpoint anything that like an analytics consultant does or says that sort of can play any kind of role in like winning even like one game most of the time. But I do think Dan and and the team that he put together that included me, our direction that we nudged the team was a part of how that team got built. The Kyle Korver, the coach Bud, you know, that 60, what was it? The 60 win Hawk team. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about what happened against LeBron in the playoffs. Course, but that no. team to me was one of the teams that sort of within five to 10 years, every team in the NBA was looking a lot more like that team. Yeah. Well, I, I remember someone with an analytics staff, well, you know, we always talk about the grass is always greener on the other side. Right. And I was like, man, it would be so cool to work for a team. And he's like, man, it would be so great to write for an audience greater than one. Yeah. And I was, and I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, let's say I write up a, a brilliant report and I have this amazing statistical discovery. And it could win a thousand games. But if the one person that I'm supposed to persuade doesn't like it or doesn't buy in, I can't do anything with it anymore. Yeah. At least not until you leave the team. And then, you know, uh, years later, maybe when like the NDA lifts or whatever. And one of the things that I was, you know, when I worked for the Hawks, they were, I was very lucky that they let me write about other sports for 538. Uh, I wasn't allowed to write about basketball, whether in the NBA or college, because one of my things was I did draft, um, you know, research as well, but I could write about hockey. 
you know, so it, it was really kind of the best of all of those worlds. I could have an insight that only had a small audience on the basketball side, but I still was able to kind of foster that larger audience in, in other sports. Yeah. Cause I'd imagine it would be frustrating if you felt like, all right, I, I just did this, this study and I did this analysis and I, I don't know how, where it went, or I don't know how much of an impact it made. Whereas if you write publicly, you can see when a good article does well or when, when you know, it seems to resonate and people go, wow, that's such a really cool finding. Whereas if you're working for a team and that audience is just like an office and it, you want to incentivize people to keep things in-house, your revelations, you're, you're not going to have that same dopamine that you would otherwise, right? Um, oh, that yeah. rush of feeling like, there's a bunch of people who learned something about LeBron James today that they didn't know before, and it's getting passed around, and that rush is pretty cool. Um, but also, I'd imagine the rush of having a hand in a championship or making the playoffs is something I've never really felt. And for you, Neil, as someone who's written publicly and worked for a team on the other side, what kind of rush did you get that you just can't get by writing on a sub stack that? Yeah. The, the feeling of watching a team that you're connected with be successful, especially the way that the, you know, I keep going back to the 2015 Hawks because that was the team that I was kind of, I had been involved. They brought me in like two summers earlier under Dan and we had made a push to basically make recommendations uh, of, of a team that was more analytically inclined. And I think Dan could absolutely take credit for like, we got Paul Millsap. That was a player that, you know, the stats were way higher on than maybe the the scouts were. And he put in that recommendation to go get him. You know, Kyle Korver, everyone knew that he was a great shooter and he was a great fit in Coach Bud's system. Uh, but Coach Bud himself was very receptive to analytics. He thought about the game in a way that was very compatible with the insights of yeah. this, the stat movement at that time. And you saw that even later on when he was winning a championship with the Bucks. Uh, that, you know, the, the way in which that team was built, I think the fingerprints of analytics were all over that team. And that was the thing that I was most proud of was, yeah, I mean, I won't lie and say that I was not really excited about the prospect once we got to the Eastern Conference Finals of like, am I going to get a ring, you know, as being, <laughs> uh, you know, tangentially as I was connected yeah. with that team. But the thing that was, I think, even more gratifying was just this feeling of like seeing the the possibilities of that roster be harnessed in the way that I think we were all kind of predicted and hoped that they would. But anytime... Honestly, when you're building a team, whether you're doing it in the traditional way or you're doing it using stats, you're making a prediction, right? Like you're saying, okay, based on my theory of the game and my theory of how all these pieces fit together, I think this team will be XYZ amount of good or win XYZ number of games. And so it was really, really cool for us to go in and say, 
well, this guy, you know, is going to add this many wins and this guy is going to add this many wins, especially in this system. And then actually see that work. That was so cool to see that happen. And it doesn't always work and fit. I think I've come to learn is like so important. You know, I think when we were starting out, another kind of case of hubris was this idea of like, well, you just put together a bunch of guys that have really good adjusted plus minus ratings or whatever, and, and yeah, they'll play yeah. well together. Just roll yeah. the ball out. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and it doesn't always work. I think it, it, still is a pretty valuable tool in terms of assessing how teams will play together. But the fit aspect is what really makes or breaks a team. So when you have an aspect of like, we got guys with good ratings according to the internal metrics that we have, plus they also seem to really fit together in terms of the roles that they play, this team is going to be great. And then actually to see us go out there and, and win, I think it was it was tied for a franchise record. Uh, but but you know I know the Hawks haven't won a championship since the I think late fifties, but they've had some really good teams over the years with like Mookie Blaylock and Steve Smith and uh, even before that Dominique. And so to see a team come out and and be as good as those teams from the past. And I'm from Atlanta, you know that was an important thing for me as well. Uh, you know I grew up rooting for that team as a as a kid. And so to see, you know, be a part of the, the best Hawks team in certainly in, in recent memory was also really special for me. Well, injuries played a part in that series, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, infamously, um, uh, the um, it was early in the series, right, when um, uh, when Tabo Cephalosha was, uh, yeah. like had that incident with the police and, and he got, um, his leg broken. Was, yeah. And it was kind of, I don't know that he's really played a whole lot since then. I guess he's bounced around for a few teams. Um, but yeah, that he, was he, sort of a, yeah. a, 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 you know, a, a really turning point moment, um, for that. I don't know that that really would have mattered that much, but I mean, his impact on defense was really important for that team. Well, also, Kyle Korver, I think, got hurt in game two and was out the rest of the series. And so yeah. not just Thabo, but um, yeah, uh, the fact that you had kind of the, the most high-gravity player offensively on your team uh, out of the lineup, I think. And also, game three was right down to the stretch. And so we remember game four that you guys got blown out. But like that is another reason why analytics, I just, I feel like are important is point differential and the importance of like, you know, uh, regulating your expectations on a team based on not just the record, but their either overperformance based on their point differential or underperformance. And Will Hardy of the Utah jazz coach harps on this all the time. He's just like, we exceeded our point differential last year or our win, our win record uh, exceeded what our point differential said. So we probably should have tempered our expectations this year. And they're doing it again, <laughs> is that they're exceeding their expectations uh, based on their point differential. And maybe there's something to that is like a coach in late game situations, you might have figured out a secret sauce that it is a repeatable skill. That's a whole nother podcast, Neil. Um, it is. It is. It's wild I, to hear coaches talking that way, though, because I do remember, you know, for years and years and years when you would bring up luck as a potential factor, the, that was oh. sort of the dirty word. You could yeah. not bring up luck for, for athletes and coaches. And I understand why they did not get to where they got without a immense sense of self-belief and the belief that I'm not going to let bad luck change my outcome. So I had a really uh, bad experience on that Kobe stat 
But I will say my favorite Kobe stat I ever did was because of uh, on-court, off-court data and a, a passing data through the league, um, that in 300 minutes playing with Kobe Bryant, Nick Young never assisted once Kobe Bryant on a made basket. And that I did for the big number, and it was awesome. I loved that stat. It was like my favorite finding ever because it was so perfect that it was Swaggy P. When he plays with this Hall of Famer, just puts the blinders on and goes and shoots, and in 371 (laughs) minutes or whatever it was, playing next to Kobe Bryant never once passed to him directly for a made basket, which was just, it was was glorious. He was probably, yeah, he was like... I'm better than this guy. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of confidence. That's yeah, right. I love and self-belief. That. Um, all right. Well, uh, I am so glad you're back writing full-time uh, at Substack because uh, now we're on the same team. And uh, this is this is really fun. So uh, tell people where they can get your, your stuff and um, how, I mean... Really, uh, how much they, how much, what, what kind of stuff they, they should be expecting? Because you're not just an NBA guy, even though you worked for the Atlanta Hawks, you're you're all over. Yeah, so they can go and find me at neilpain.substack.com. I don't have a, uh, as we said at the top of the show, I don't have a fun little like tomthefinder.com type of thing. Uh, maybe I should make a cute little thing like that at some point. Um, but right now it's it's neilpain.substack.com. And uh, yeah, they can find, you know, like I mentioned, I'm trying to write something every day except sunday you know i'm resting uh uh, on on the lord's day and then um i also keep a bunch of updating uh like trackers basically so you know i have an nba power rating uh i've revived the old 538 raptor i've revived the old 538 elo ratings uh for the nba also have hockey uh power ratings and player ratings in there uh, the nfl season is over but throughout the nfl season i was updating uh, power ratings there so you know and then i have little like one-offs so i have like a caitlin clark record tracker which is going to be useless in about a couple days uh depending on when the show comes out uh, and and, uh, you know, tracking her uh, her pace to break the all-time record, not just the Kelsey Plum women's record, but also the Pete Maravich um, overall Division One record is very much uh, in at risk by the end of the regular season. So it's just a bunch. It's kind of a hodgepodge of like articles and then also trackers that are things that are... I'm going to use anyway. That's the other thing is like throughout my time at the messenger, I was really updating those, uh, even though it wasn't really part of my day job because I find those things useful. And I'm constantly like after 538 sports went down, I was sort of found myself being like, Oh man, I wonder who's the favorite to win the NBA title. Ah, I can't find that, you know? And so I was like, you know what? I should just remake this stuff myself and put it out there for people. Cause I can't be the only one that finds it useful in sort of a daily type of sense of like, I just want to know what's going on. Who's good. Who's, who's the favorite, who's bad, that type of thing. Who's the LVP Tom. Who is the LVP of this season? Oh, Oh, that would be, I, I'm going to look it up right now. That's very easy to find in okay. my. Uh, what is what is uh, what is Neil Neil Payne's uh, Neil Payne's LVP LVP? No, this is actually so Scoot Uh-oh. Henderson. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Scoot Uh-oh. Henderson, Uh-oh. right now. Oh, we got. We're getting a little. I know a we're getting controversial. The, I can't hear you here. Well, who's <laughs> who's the other one? Give me another name. 
Uh, well, we, you know, we've got Malachi Branham, we've got Ish Smith, Keontae George, Zach Collins, uh, you know, a lot of young players, a lot of young players. And I think that's not, um, and that's why the Wiggins thing in retrospect, I, I I do kind of, you know, in in retrospect, I'm glad that I have the story to tell about it, but it's entirely too much pressure. uh, And we put so much pressure on young players in the NBA, just in general. I mean, think about the pressure on Wimby, uh, going into this season. That was like the most pressure anyone has ever put and he's actually played well but uh, you know somebody like scoot henderson there was a ton of pressure on him too just to kind of like be uh you know prove himself as a uh being part of that same draft uh and high up in that same draft class so you know we ask young players to do a, a lot more than maybe they're ready for nowadays and i think that that's something that we all can kind of keep in mind as analysts is like maybe the expectations need to be tampered down a little bit. And then also if someone struggles when they're like 18 or 19, it's not the end of the world, especially if you can kind of see signs that they're going to do something in the NBA. Well, because as you well know, everything about, you know, there's some players that do everything well, but far more often as an NBA player, you just have to do like one or two things or like one and a half things as good as anyone else in the world, which is not easy. I'm saying that like it's an easy thing, but uh, you know, it's it's really about finding a role that that works for you in the NBA, and uh, that goes back to the story that I wrote about you know role players being more efficient now. Uh, it's 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 kind of a role players league as much as it is a a stars league. You know, there, there's this, there's a self awareness factor in the NBA now that like maybe 20 years ago, you could put your head in the sand about what kind of player you were. And there wasn't synergy. There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't a bunch of stuff that could kind of regulate what you're supposed to be doing out there. Cause shacked in a fool is a, is a modern construct. Right. But also Twitter. So like if you do an embarrassing thing or if you have a bad possession, it, it almost makes it, uh, you know, more real to you and feeling that pressure of like, man, I'm, I'm going to be roasted on Twitter for, for what I just did out on the floor. And I got to imagine that like that kind of pressure or that feeling of knowing, oh my God, I'm going to go viral on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok because I just screwed up. I think that probably has made the game a lot more polarized into the, the heliocentric players and role players. And again, we could probably come up with five story ideas out of that finding. And that's what I love about um, the databases you put together and the stories you put together is oftentimes you're just continuing to pull on that thread. And you're like, man, there's so much here that I would love to get into. And so if you want to check that out, neilpain.substack.com. Uh, thank you so much, Neil, for joining me on The Finder. And uh, we this is going to be the first of many, I believe, collaborations between us. I, I hope, hope so. Yeah, I mean, it's great to be, like uh, like you said, teammates again, because uh, we go back to the very early days of the Insider uh, universe as well. So it's, it's just great to kind of reconnect with you, Tom. Thanks, Neil.